I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Before I dive into today's conversation, a quick reminder that the Eat for the Planet cookbook is now available for pre-order. This is the follow-up to my first book titled Eat for the Planet, which made the case for why we urgently need to change our food system and how we can all be a part of that transformation with our food choices. The cookbook is an essential guide for bringing about that change in your own kitchen. The Eat for the Planet cookbook features recipes from brands like Beyond Meat, Veggie Grill, Tofurky, No Evil Foods, Ripple Foods, and from talented chefs like Miyoko Shinner, Chad and Derek Sarno, Peggy Chan, Fran Costigan, Janae Clairbon, and several others. Go to eftp.co slash cookbook to learn more. The book is available on Amazon and everywhere else books are sold. Pre-order one for yourself and another for a friend or family member who could really use it. In this episode, I speak with Nate Salpeter, who co-founded Sweet Farm with his wife, Anna Sweet. Sweet Farm is a nonprofit aimed at creating a more compassionate and sustainable world by addressing the profoundly negative impacts of industrialized agriculture on both animals and plants. To do this, Sweet Farm drives systemic impact through a combination of education, inspiration, and innovation. Anna has spent her career in the games and entertainment industry, while Nate is a PhD nuclear engineer by trade. They are also advisors and investors in food and ingredient-centric companies ranging from Geltor, Shiok Meats, Something Better Foods, Better Meat Co., and Turtle Tree Labs, as well as mentors for a number of ag tech companies. I have spent many episodes of this podcast talking about food technology and entrepreneurship and how it can help bring about the change we desperately need in our global food system. And while I'm very optimistic about the positive impact the plant-based food industry and emerging technologies like cell-based, cultivated, and recombinant proteins can make, there's no way we can address the interconnected global food system if we don't also fix the way we currently farm both animals and vegetables. If you are curious and open about tackling the various challenges of building a truly sustainable food system, this is a conversation for you. In this episode, we discuss the work Sweet Farm is doing by creating a hybrid of an animal sanctuary and a farm that grows heirloom vegetables, herbs, fruits, and flowers. Nate shares how Sweet Farm is using cutting-edge technology like precision agriculture to reduce harmful inputs and improve farming practices. We also talk about why they focus on the three pillars of education, inspiration, and innovation, and how the farm's various programs are designed to address those areas. Sweet Farm is not only taking the animal sanctuary and vegetable farm models to the next level, they are also using the farm as a hub to connect food startups with investors that are new to the field of alternative proteins. But this conversation is not just about Sweet Farm and touches upon a range of really interesting issues from technology and farming to investing and the future of alternative proteins like clean meat and plant-based meat. Nate is a super smart guy and I really enjoyed this conversation with him. 
I love the work Nate and Anna are doing, and I hope this episode not only inspires you to support Sweet Farm's important work, but also inspires you to learn more about farming in general. Nate Saltpetter from Sweet Farm, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. So what are you doing uh, with a sanctuary and working in the food space, Nate? You you seem to have a very unusual background for someone uh, with a sanctuary and, and doing the kind of work you're doing in the food system. Tell me where you got started and what got you interested in food and food production. Sure. So... My wife, Anna Sweet, and I, so uh, of course she's the namesake of the sanctuary, Uh, we actually were getting more and more um, uh, acclimated with or or interested in where our food was sourced. Uh, This happened over years of, you know... um, uh, you know, we went down the natural path of like, let's let's source uh, humane meat and, you know, humane eggs and all this kind of stuff and all this, you know, uh, humane washing of, uh, of uh, products. Um, we kept getting more and more interest in like, um, how can we do better uh, for the animals? And, and um, as we started to learn more and educate ourselves more, uh, ultimately, you know, we realized uh, what the ultimate endpoint is for all of these animals and uh and we just had to you know we we decided like we got to make we got to make a difference but the real genesis for sweet farm itself uh came about when uh, anna and i were doing a lot of volunteer work for dog and cat rescues and we were going in and helping them increase their throughput so it was things like uh better marketing practices uh ways they can increase adoption rates and uh we kept hitting this natural uh limit on what dog and cat rescues could do. And um, as Anna and I started thinking about, you know, how can we broaden that impact? Um, the logical endpoint was always animals in the food system, right? With over, uh, you know, 70 plus billion animals uh, produced a year for people's plates, uh, it seemed like the natural uh, place to go. Um, about this time, we were also uh, hitting this break point of making that self-realization about, uh, you know, no matter how, how good uh, you're, you're treating the animals, they still end up, uh, you know, in the slaughterhouse. So um, it, it was really uh, this aha moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we, when we initially made the decision to start, start this project, start Sweet Farm, uh, it, was much, it was much more about um, uh, addressing the impacts of industrialized farming across uh, across not just the animal space, but also uh, the fruits and veggies that we eat because industrialized farming has had a profoundly negative impact on both. Mm-hmm. Um, my, myself, my background is in uh, green energy. I work in the nuclear industry, uh, so designing new reactors, that kind of thing. Um, Anna, she, she works in the video game industry, but has a you know, really in-depth tech background. So we decided we really wanted to... Uh, uh, go about this in in a little bit of a different way and create a bunch of entry points for people. So it's it's much more about um, you know if you can get that captured audience on one side, whether it's the animal side or the ag side, mm-hmm. you can then start to talk to them about the other side. And and the reason we wanted to do both is of course the food web is incredibly intertwined, mm-hmm. um, and and it's hard to talk about one without also addressing the other. Yeah. So w- when was that first point that you started questioning your food? Was it a 
Was it a book? Was it a documentary that, that kind of made you think that whatever you learned growing up, because we've all had that moment at some point in our lives, we've, we've all grown up thinking, well, food is food and all, all food is good as long as it tastes good. But uh, yeah, what was that point for you? So early on, uh, I started seeing a lot of a lot of press coming out about some of these changes that were being made around, uh, you know, cage-free eggs versus um, versus eggs in battery cages, and I I started to look more into, you know, not knowing anything about where the eggs on my plate, you know, were coming from. I started to try and understand more and more about that, and of course. A lot of that work came out of HSUS mm-hmm. um, and, and the work of, of a lot of uh, dedicated folks on that front. And I would say for me, that was that was the first time, right? There was a lot of a lot of um, uh, press around uh, McDonald's and, and their, some of the changes that they put in place, um, you know, really early on. But um, so that for me, that was the aha moment um, that got me started. Uh, it's a little bit silly, but uh, there was a uh, a show uh, called Portlandia. I don't know if you've seen of the very first episode. Oh yeah, yeah. So so that was uh, you know Anna and I. We lived in in Seattle, Pacific Northwesterners, <laughs> and uh, that was totally us. You know, going going to the farm and trying to make sure that um, you know the animal that you know the the farm was mm-hmm. engaging in these right practices. You know, we were we were going to the extreme of trying to ensure we were we were causing as little harm as possible mm-hmm. but ultimately we were like wait a minute this is uh, uh not quite you know it's still right. not the end these animals want yeah yeah no I, I i remember that episode they go to a farm and they're they want to they ask questions about the chicken i think uh, yeah they wanted to know the chicken's name right, and all right. that stuff oh yeah <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, it's a it's a pretty brilliant episode, but um, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. So, um, so you obviously it seemed like realized that there was much more to your food than what 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 met the eye, and as always, as with most of us, you you go down this this journey to try to figure out answers, and um, I guess eventually for you it led you to a point where it felt like. Uh, you couldn't find some sort of solution, and no matter even if you knew the name of the chicken, it doesn't solve uh, that. Ninety-nine percent of meat, dairy, and eggs that we consume in the U.S. come from industrial farms. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And you did mention right in the beginning that you were starting to think of this issue beyond just um, the horrors and the gruesome reality that is industrial animal agriculture, but also all industrial farming in general, because uh, the reason I bring that up is because uh, sometimes people come into this world of uh, food and, and good food because they are primarily driven by um, a reduction of animal suffering. And it's it's a valid enough reason. If you're only f- driven by that, you can make a lot of difference, not just for animals, but you can also help the planet and improve people's health as well. But... Um, in your case, would you say that you are driven purely by um, the animal issue, or do you do you see this interconnected web that is the food system, and how perhaps you need uh, more complex solutions to this problem because it is a complex problem? Absolutely. So the both Anna and I are are very systems oriented people. Um, I professionally work on designing, you know, 
complex systems where there's interactions between a lot of different uh, components. Uh, you know, a, a nuclear power plant, it's like a Swiss watch the size of multiple city blocks, right? And these mm-hmm. interconnectedness is, um, is part of that. Uh, the food, the food web is is very much the same. So, uh, what a lot of what a lot of people don't realize, even even some of the lifelong uh, people who have been plant based, you know, vegans, uh, their entire uh, you know the last four decades, they don't realize that a lot of the organic produce that they're eating on a daily basis, uh, it is fertilized with blood meal and bone meal and fish meal and feather meal. Um, so there's there's that component, right? That's like a lot of the the ethical side of it. Um, we can we could talk all day about like how those secondary and tertiary markets actually prop up mm-hmm. uh, the industry, right? Prop up the margins. Um, but on the sustainability component, um, there's a lot of aspects to uh, food production that um, that aren't aren't talked about as much within this community. So even um, you know. Synthetics, the use of synthetics in growing food um, is, uh, you know, I wouldn't say on the decline because it's not. The the um, consumer demand for organics is on the rise, but so is the use of synthetics in non-organic food. And um, both, uh, you know, both have their issues and uh, synthetic fertilizers have all sorts of issues on, on eutrophication, uh, you know, uh, uh, as they run off into waterways, they lead to things like fish kills and, and destructions of um, environments. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, issues around that. Uh, but then on the organic side, right, people are using uh, manure applied to uh, crops. So if you just look at manure application, it's somewhere on the order of uh, 11 plus billion tons a year applied to crops, mm-hmm. right? And then there's a, about three times that amount just left in the field. So, uh, you know, tying, tying in, uh, understanding these issues, I think is, is the first step, um, to understanding, like, how can we, uh, start to think about solutions that actually can lead to the systemic change? So if, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium inputs are, are on the rise as food production is on the rise, but, uh, the demand for organic produce is also on the rise. Mm. That's actually increasing the value of those secondary mm-hmm. marketplaces mm-hmm. for the animal byproducts. So, you know, at Sweet Farm, we are are growing produce, but and it is a small scale operation. However, when we are addressing how we uh, how we actually build our system, we consider how can it scale out to those farms that are, you know. 50,000 acres or or 100,000 acres that can actually help feed the 7.7 billion people Mm -hmm. currently on the planet and the 9.7 billion, you know, over the next, you know, several decades. Mm -hmm. Um, It it starts with with the systems and understanding those. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because I, you know, I, I obviously focus a lot on talking about what's wrong with industrial animal agriculture. Um, I, I don't think I, I necessarily focus in the sense on the podcast, but but the book was all focused on the problem with that. But a part of me, what you just outlined, a part of me was conscious of the fact that I was leaving out the part that it doesn't mean that that uh, that all vegetable farming is also good. And especially on the chapter on pollution, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, um, 
And it just it didn't make. I, I just wanted to keep it focused, so I decided that we needed another book for that, maybe. <laughs> but it, but a lot of what I was saying could be said for a lot of vegetable farming too. The runoff, the the nitrogen and phosphorus in the water ending up in our waterways, resulting in uh, algae blooms and dead zones. It, it is industrial farming, yes, and the largest contributor to that is is obviously animal farming, but. As you said, as people grow more interested in organic produce, people don't realize the downstream impacts of these decisions and how we end up actually propping up a system that we're all against. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, one of the things that I, I've chatted a bunch with uh, with folks recently, I've I've gotten a keen interest in in uh, um, I've been calling it humanure. Uh, right. Um, in, in many states, um, of course, um, you know, the sludge from the wastewater treatment um, can't and, and shouldn't uh, be applied in that form to to crops. Um, but it's important to remember when considering ecosystems that turns out humans are part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Right. With with as many uh, people on this planet as as we have, if we're considering, you know, a a field producing crops as a uh ecosystem and you want to start looking at regenerative agriculture and things that are coming out are putting um, putting inputs back into the soil, um, that's that's a uh, important first step. But considering the fact that we as humans are going in, picking all that produce and pulling it away, what's happening to our waste, mm. right? So the last two and a half years, uh, we've been field trialing um, a new technology with a company called BioForce Tech that's actually pyrolyzing um, uh, wastewater, um, uh, you know, remnant and turning it into this uh, activated charcoal. So it's it's an amazing solution to the fact that humans are producing over three billion tons of humanure a year. Um, some of the problems with with it in that raw form is you know pathogens antibiotics, polyfloral alkyls, you know, the nonstick coatings. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those have to, you know, be uh, removed or broken down. So in the case of these, these technologies, such as pyrolysis, it can actually be broken down into a, a byproduct called biochar. So we've been working with uh, companies like that to actually produce these biochars mm-hmm. that can then be uh, used as supplements into the field. So it breaks down antibiotics into carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, these individual mole- you know, elements as opposed to the complex molecules that, that we don't like. Mm. So that's a really interesting sustainable um, you know, technology that, that really could drive a huge impact on a global scale. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to take a bit of a step back. I'm, the reason I wanted you on this podcast is because it's the kind of stuff you're talking about, because we don't talk enough about it, in my opinion. I think we we end up in these camps where you are either a um, proponent of regenerative agriculture and you understand farming and you understand the impact on our soil and carbon sequestration. And and on the other end, you are a vegan who's eating junk. Um, you know, we, we, the world is sort of divided into. I was even listening to a, a podcast earlier this morning with uh, 
Dave Asprey, the guy from Bulletproof, mm-hmm. um, he was on another podcast, and towards the end, I think he was talking about his new book, and he said, "Well, we won't. Hopefully, we won't destroy the world uh, if all these vegans stop eating all their junk food." And then, <laughs> in the next sentence, he said something that I did agree with. He started talking about how industrial farming is the problem, and corn-fed beef is the problem, and that. Um, everyone, no one, sh- even if you eat meat, you shouldn't buy that. And if you can't afford it, you should just eat half or eat less. And I was just like, I can't believe he actually said something I agree with. Mm-hmm. So, the, and I think we oversimplify these solutions, right? And I think, of course, on this podcast, I've featured many entrepreneurs and investors and others who who look at this this complicated system that is our food system, our, this complicated interconnected web and you know, animal bad, plants good. <laughs> it's, it's oversimplification of the problem. Uh, e- e- even when we we make anything from plant based sources, you can you can inadvertently cause new problems, right? So I think you get it, and and that's why when we chatted, we we met for the first time. I was it was refreshing to to, and we didn't even dive deep into the agricultural part of this whole thing, but um, but. It's a more nuanced conversation, and and it and it and maybe we don't have the answers, and maybe you don't have all the answers yet. But if you don't start asking the right questions and thinking about it, we never will, and we'll just replace one industrial system for probably a, a worse one or equally bad one. Yeah, totally. The you know understanding the um, the nuance is is the start of of making that change. So, uh, for example, when when we talk to farmers, and and when I say farmers, that has a broad implication. Uh, we we chat with everyone from small scale farmers up through some of the largest producers in the world. Um, so we'll have them we'll have them out to the farm. Uh, we're engaging with with these folks who uh, many of them generational farmers, right? One of them described his small scale operation. Um, you know, he, he described it as a small scale operation because it only had 50,000 acres. <laughs> right. And, and when I started laughing, he pointed at one of the other people, uh, in the group that was out, uh, talking to us, uh, who had 200,000 acres mm-hmm. in his operation. Right. And, um, understanding, uh, you know, what is important to the farmers, what is important to the companies, um, and how can, uh, you know, how can, uh, we as, as, uh, organizations as as advocates for this change uh, help empower them to make change. Right, people and people are inherently good. Um, they they don't want to cause destruction. You know, destruction of the environment mm-hmm. of people's health. It's just in many cases um, that's the status quo. That's um, what they've all they've known. Um, so so trying to uh, provide them with those solutions to those complex problems is is a start. So. Uh, in a, in the case of some of those generational farmers, it begins with understanding that hey, the last five generations have been farming this way mm-hmm. um, with some you know profoundly negative changes <laughs> in the last you know few decades. Um, but they want to farm that land for the next five generations. Mm. So starting to educate them on some of the changes that are on the horizon and some of the things that they can start to implement to ensure that they don't get. Uh, disrupted out of out of existence, um, but making those changes in a way that that is is you know positive. So, uh, in the case of you know uh, farmers along the equatorial zone, right, 
regenerative agriculture can oftentimes be a tough sell, mm. right? Because they can produce crops year round. So how do you convince someone to uh, take a third of the growing season, a third of the year to grow mm. co- cover crop? That's an incredibly tough sell. Mm. So um, starting to instead understand where they're at, what their requirements are, and what possible technologies um, can be implemented to help them understand that change. And uh, so, I mean, we could talk about the implications of clean meat, right? Mm-hmm. Like with, with you know, the, the um, you know, as clean meat, you know, comes onto the market in, in the next decades, you know, decade to, to you know, 20, 30 years, um, what happens to the byproducts mm. that these farmers are using to fertilize their crops with, right? They, they no longer exist. So if you're talking to a generational farmer, you say, okay, what are you going to do even though you're not a, a meat producer, right? You're, you're just growing things that use these outputs. So let's help you identify what are going to be the pain points 20 years from now mm. and start making those changes today. Right. So I'm going to put a pin on the clean meat uh, thing for now. I'll come back to it because I I want to um, I want to first get into what you're doing with Sweet Farm and how that got started. So obviously you went from um, going to restaurants and asking where the chicken came from to now launching Sweet Farm a couple a few years back. Uh, what was the thinking behind the, the why you did this and, and moved from Seattle to to California and now live on a farm? So we moved to California actually because uh, my wife Anna was recruited by Facebook at the time. She's no longer mm-hmm. uh, she's no longer there. But um, and uh, we had started to think about starting that project up in the Seattle area, uh, anyways. But the the thinking behind it was really addressing areas within this space that uh, aren't being addressed by other organizations. And, and it's, in our, in our opinion, it's really about um, complementing the work of others. There's so many amazing organizations out there uh, doing incredible work. And rather than being duplicative, we decided, you know, if we're going to do this, we want to complement and, and really serve as a multiplier on the work of others. And, and we think, you know, addressing, uh, addressing these, uh, you know, pain points or, or areas that need, need change, uh, across a broader spectrum, uh, but still in a way that, that, you know, integrates into the overall ecosystem, uh, was the key point, uh, to the way that we uh, developed Sweet Farm. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously, you looked at the sanctuary model. You saw what nonprofits were doing in the animal welfare space, as well as, of course, you have uh, hundreds of, of food sustainability nonprofits. Um, why the farm? Why, uh, firstly, why, and then, and then let's get into the how you went about doing it. Uh, and then I'd love to get into what you're doing now with the farm and, and how it, it is kind of becoming this model that others can hopefully replicate at scale. So the decision to address both mm-hmm. uh, was uh, both agriculture and the animal side uh, was, you know, it wasn't an initial idea of like, well, there's profound, profoundly negative impacts. But when you really dive into why addressing both is proves more 
effective to to uh, this model. Our thinking along those lines are you get people who come out to the farm because they are interested in the animals, but then you have that captured audience that you get to talk to them about the plants. And then vice versa, you have tons of people. There's a huge demand for people to, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, introduce their kids to the fact that, yes, plants do come out of the ground and um, here's how you grow a tomato and here's how you harvest a tomato. Uh, you get a, you get a whole, you know, different audience that comes out for those reasons. Mm-hmm. And then they hear, you know, they'll hear a, a cow moo and they'll say like, oh, is that... What is that a cow you have? Is that for milk? Is that for is that for meat? And and we're able to to walk them over and meet Gizmo the cow and talk to them about these issues and introduce them to these concepts. And and when you have those uh, that sort of grassroots you know one on one education moment, then it it's uh, it's a lot more intimate and and impactful than if you capture that person. Uh, perhaps uh, through, say, a Facebook ad or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, so I think that that definitely answers the the question about the blended. You almost have like a blended model, a hybrid, where you're part organic farm, part uh, sanctuary. Do you, in the um, in the farming part of it, the vegetable farming part of it, do you use animal inputs that you get from the sanctuary? Um, how, how do you how do you kind of yeah, what what do you do there? So the we do you know we do have over a hundred animals mm-hmm. that are rescued. Um, they they've come out of a variety of situations, everything from factory farms to live markets, abuse cases, exploitation cases. They produce they do produce manure, mm. right? That's that is a natural output for them. Um, when we when we looked at how the agriculture program was uh, going to be built up and we determined what are the what are the inputs that are needed on that side Um, it was we had early on we had made the conscious decision that we don't want any animal inputs in our in our ag program however as these as the animals you know are producing manure we started to look at well what can what can we do with that compost right um, do we ship it away? Do we, you know, it, it, are there other things uh, to do with that? And the reality is the carbon footprint becomes incredibly large. Mm-hmm. If, if we start hauling this uh, manure away, it costs thousands of dollars per month to haul away, um, the, uh, the amount of, um, uh, you know, compost. And, um, that's, that is, uh, money that can actually be put into programs and education in other impactful areas. So uh, in terms of the inputs into the ag side, the, the key input that we're using is the biochar, uh, which is, you know, based on uh, the, the humanure side mm-hmm. of things. Um, but we do, we do take care to, uh, you know, build, build soil and whatnot. And there are parts of the, uh, parts of the uh, ag field that we do put the compost onto. Um, that said, we don't rely mm-hmm. on it. It is. It only makes up a tiny fraction of what is actually needed mm. uh, to to have a sustainable uh, ag program. So instead, we focus on uh, green manures. So that's cover crops that produce nitrogen. Yep. Um, so bell beans and winter wheat and all the uh, good things that actually help build um, good soil. 
And those are the things that we focus on, but uh, we're not about to expand our our carbon footprint by uh, mm-hmm. trucking away um, this this stuff. The key point is we're not uh, the the animals don't aren't there to produce manure for right. us. Yeah, and then on the ag side, are you? I mean, the biochar was interesting, and you described it earlier. But are you using? Are you almost using the ag program as this experimentation ground where you do? interesting technology partnerships and almost test out ways in which, you know, we can farm, we can grow vegetables that is actually good for us and good for the soil, good for the planet. Yeah. So our work with BioForce Tech is, was our first early field partnership. So we were the first, first farm that was actually utilizing uh, their product. Um, they have an amazing technology that's, that, you know, needed needed to go to this next logical step, uh, and from there, as we as we spent the last two and a half years field trialing with them, uh, it that relationship with them has now developed into uh, us helping solidify another uh, municipality uh, signing on for another one of their systems. So it starts to create mm-hmm. uh, another point of uh, another point source for these biochars for other farmers in the area, right? So uh, we have been doing that kind of work with them. There's another company that we've been working with uh, called Interplant that uh, is doing really interesting work with uh, biosensors and and amazing sensing technology for things like uh, precision agriculture. So that's a a really Mm -hmm. interesting area that you could you could probably find a whole podcast just on (laughs) precision agriculture these days, um, where uh, we've we've been incubating some of the work that that they're doing uh, to help reduce the inputs that are needed mm-hmm. uh, in agriculture in large scale agriculture. So um, you know if you can reduce the amount of uh, inputs that are needed, whether it's you know nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, or or herbicides and pesticides, uh, then then that reduces the harm that some of those inputs can really have on the environment. So it's less bad is is you know good. Yeah, and so obviously. I, I should have asked this in the beginning, but it sounded like you didn't have a background in farming or um, uh, how did, how have you, and when did Sweet Farm started back in 2015? So, or, yeah, so, so 2015 is when we actually moved to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my extensive background in farming uh, consists of uh, going and visiting my grandparents as a kid and uh, they had four acres of uh, rocks as far as I was concerned. They just had me a, uh, haul a pile of rocks from one place to the other, you know, on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and, uh, so, so my exposure to it was mostly, um, you know, not, you know, not extensive, um, but, but enough to, to know my way around a tractor. And then Anna, um, she actually grew up, uh, her family had a a small farm in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. Um, so she, she did have, uh, animals around, um, their, their family didn't, raise them for meat or anything like that. They're more uh, companion animals, but there were, you know, some sheep and, and a uh, couple of horses and that kind of thing. And um, so uh, both of us had a little bit of exposure. And our, our biggest thing has been um, in 2015, when we, when we started Sweet Farm, we knew from the onset that we needed to surround ourselves with people much smarter than us on these issues. And take as much in as we as we can but also you know build that team and empower them um you know empower them Mm -hmm. to make decisions empower them to 
speak on behalf of the organization. Um, and, and that's really how we've, how we've had, uh, such incredible growth and response from, from the community, um, you know, both in the Bay area, but also at this point starting to get recognition at much larger scales is because we have amazing people that speak on behalf of the organization. Yeah. And so what's the, how would you measure your, your sort of impact so far? Because one of the, um, you know, you're not purely a farm sanctuary. Yes, you are kind of one. And also at the same time have an agriculture program. There, there's some within the environmental as well as animal welfare and rights movement who sort of don't look upon as farm sanctuaries as being the most effective tool to get anything done purely because of the numbers of animals. It, and they, they often paint farm sanctuaries as being nothing more than just a, a small um, education opportunity to get people, small groups of people to go connect with the animals. And maybe that has some sort of rep, ripple effect that there's no easy way to measure versus, you know, doing things like, um, well, two things. One is, you know, policy changes or the other is uh, making changes to, to the food system itself through market forces and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you, you're, you're a smart guy. Why did you, <laughs> why did you still pick uh, a small-scale um, farm plus sanctuary model? And, and looking back, like how would you, if, you have to, if someone were to ask, I, mean, I guess I'm asking you, so, so Nate, what have you achieved in the last <laughs> few years? Well, we, how would you answer that question? So, so when you look at how how impact can be driven, uh, Sweet Farm was conceived with with the impact model of driving it through three key areas. It's education. That's the what's and the whys. What are the issues? Why are they important? The second is inspiration. So you have to inspire people to uh, make change. Uh, you have to empower them to inspire those around them. Uh, but but. The way we're viewing the education and inspiration, it's not just at the grassroots level. It's also at the at the decision maker level. It's inspiring uh, investors who have not uh, uh, put money into into some of these areas of plant based proteins or sustainable agriculture. Uh, inspiring them and educating them to to get into these areas. Uh, it's also inspiring and educating farmers to change their practices. Uh, but that's the, just the first two. The third component is innovation. So we have education, inspiration, and innovation. And why innovation? Well, of course, if you look at the number of people who adopt a plant-based lifestyle and then revert back to eating meat, it's something on the order of like 84%. Mm-hmm. And so there's two things. One is how do you increase the rate of adoption? And also, two, how do you maintain uh you know, maintain that uh, lifestyle change. So our viewpoint is innovative products and technologies. So um, things that are uh, really, uh, um, you know, present in people's choices are the obvious ones. Um, there's, you know, all sorts of amazing plant-based products on the market nowadays. But the less obvious ones are are these like behind the scene companies, the gel tours of the world that are creating, mm-hmm. um, you know, collagen without animals or Clara foods creating egg proteins without a single chicken. And that's the inherent. Those are some of the technologies that we view as uh, really important to making inherent changes in people's uh, daily lives. So they'll, they'll permeate into those products that they're already buying. And, 
then those changes are happening already. And then as, as time goes, we can start to focus, change our focus on, on what we're inspiring people to do in their daily lives because they're already starting to make some of those other changes without even knowing it. Yeah. So uh, on the on the innovation sort of side of things, how do you sort of have any formal programs? I know you have some partnerships and things like that, but you also use the farm as sort of a as a as a hub to connect. I mean, you're at the end of the day, you are in uh, Half Moon Bay, and so so if anyone not familiar with with California, that's uh, not too far from Silicon Valley. Uh, one would say, is that part of Silicon Valley as such? It. It is actually one of the one of the more central parts of the Bay Area when mm-hmm. you start to include Santa Cruz mm. as as part of that. So we're located right on the Pacific Coastal Highway, uh, about ten minutes south of Half Moon Bay. But we're forty forty five minutes from San Francisco. We're just thirty five minutes from Sand Hill Road, which is where mm-hmm. you know the largest uh, investors, some of the top investors in the entire world, are located. Um, and then, and then similarly from Santa Cruz, about 45 minutes north of there. So, uh, first, firstly, our location is, is key. Um, that was not picked, uh, uh, you know, flippantly. It was, is very, uh, uh, you know, strategically thought out. Uh, we wanted a location that was, um, easy, easy access points for, uh, people as well as for, uh, you know, as we built up the programs on the, on the innovation side, we knew that. You know, if we're having investors out to out to the farm and um, entrepreneurs that are using it as a hub for, um, you know, incubating their ideas and things like that, um, it needs to not be so far out that uh, um, that it becomes, um, you know, too difficult for mm-hmm. them. So so as um, in terms of programs that we've been building up. So, of course, there's the incubation side of things. We've already talked a little bit about that. Uh, but we've also been doing work with um, uh, doing things like pitch events, mm-hmm. right? So we had one last year, and four of the four of the companies that uh, we were working with that we're currently raising, we had two pre-seed uh, rounds, you know, in the like sub million dollar range. We had one Series A in the five million dollar range, and then another one in the like 30-ish million dollar range, mm. uh, all doing uh, a pitch uh, at this event. And we had over 40 investors out there. Mm. So, and those investors included, you know, the top, uh, you know, the top soybean producers in the world and the top meat producers in the world, which is, you know, some people ask like, well, why why do you include uh, those folks? And, and there's, I think, some important reasons to uh, incorporate them because as at those events, we also incorporate some education components into it of, um, you know, here, you know, in the long term, here's, here's issues um, and here's what the market forces are saying. And by the way, here's some companies that are doing transformative things. Mm-hmm. Here's an opportunity to actually, you know, change, change your way, get into something good, get into something better, you know, better for the environment and obviously better for the animals. Um, and, and, uh, so, so we've done, you know, pitch events, we've done, um, we had an innovation dinner. Our first annual innovation dinner was only about a month and a month and a half ago mm. or so. And we had, uh, about 60 people out to the farm. So a whole bunch of founders and then a whole bunch of out of network investors. Mm. So we made sure to bring in the investors that are not already investing in the space, right? Cause that's part of the, uh, 
I guess if we had a bunch of people that are already in the space, it would have mm-hmm. been more of a party, uh, <laughs> which nothing wrong with parties. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that we're, we're getting that those, you know, fresh, fresh eyes mm. on the space um, so they can start to put their, uh, you know, millions of dollars into these new technologies. Um, and that's uh, that's some of the impact that we're already having is is we're starting to hear about these cases of um, introductions uh, that we've made in these unique settings uh, and inspirational settings are already starting to, uh, you know, form, you know, formalize mm-hmm. into actual investment in these companies. Yeah. You know, one of the things I find the coolest about what you're doing, I mean, all of it is really cool, but this is the thing that really um, caught my attention when we got started first. And of course, hearing it now, I'm, I'm even more sure of it, is that obviously you have, you and Anna both have tech backgrounds as such and you're in the heart of of tech you know mania land uh I, and I've, I've lived i used to work for tech companies I've, I've lived in the bay area for about a year and um farming is it's one of those things that yeah people want to think they're making right decisions when it comes to their food but for the most part when when people think about food uh, and tech, they're thinking about you know not thinking about farms. And when and I find really exciting is that all of this stuff you're doing is at a farm. So and I and I think that's it may sound kind of obvious, but I think where we are right now with this race to fix our food system, we're looking at technology as one of the possible solutions. It's technology that has gotten us to this crazy point that we are in. Uh, wrong use of technology, and I think it's technology that will help us get out. But somewhere along the way, it's important for us to not lose sight of the fact that we're still talking about food, and we're still talking about food that that we need to. Well, well, yes, cultivated meat and um, other technologies will recombinant proteins and other <laughs> things will eventually help feed the world. We still need to learn how to farm better, and we can even there's so much more we can do with that. And most people are just, you know, the bottom line is most people are just disconnected from where their food grows and they don't they don't even know how it happens um and so just as a a fact that you could even bring together people like that in a setting that is a farm uh that in itself i would say is a big win there's there's some interesting uh thoughts around this this idea of you know uh reconnecting people with their food and and one thing that i think is important for um you know the the movement uh, to to remember in, in all of this is that, um, you know, the concept of getting to know your farmer and going to a farmer's market and that kind of thing, um, while for, for some people is, is achievable, uh, for the vast majority, it is not. Um, it's it's would be a very a privileged thing to say that everyone should go mm-hmm. to a farmer's market on the weekend and purchase their food at uh, two or three times the cost that they can go down to a grocery outlet or, or whoever mm-hmm. and and get get their produce. Um, so so in some of those cases, the way you know, I, I like to to help educate people on you know maybe maybe start with your produce of you know eating seasonally, right? You eat seasonally, and I think you talk about this a little bit in, in your book as well of, um, you know, if you're eating produce that's in season for your location, mm-hmm. the radius around which that it, it is uh, sourced starts to shrink. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, and it's funny because a lot of people are just not 
aware of this. And even people who do say, I, I eat seasonally, I said, well, what else do you do seasonally? Do you also seasonally buy roses for your significant other during February? Because those that's not very seasonal as mm-hmm. well, right? So a lot of aspects to um, um, to that side of things. Yeah, I mean, again, another point, I think everyone, whether it's tech investors or um, even folks working on plant-based proteins and animal welfare advocates, it's. I think it's important for all of us to think about food and how food has grown. And we sometimes don't think enough about vegetables. We're always mm-hmm. thinking about, yeah, the future and, and all these cool new technologies. But there's so much more we can do with just how we source our vegetables because we all eat vegetables. Totally. And if you look at, um, you know, what is the – we've been talking about, you know, NPK inputs, nitrogen inputs and all this kind of stuff and how do you reduce that and how do you offset it. Uh, but if you can, you know, reduce the amount that goes to waste in the field um, itself, that's one of the biggest ways to make a, a huge impact right off the bat. So something like 30 to 40 percent of, of produce – um, you know, grown in an open field mm-hmm. uh, goes to waste, rots right there in the field. So when you look at uh, technologies, uh, and these aren't new technologies, but hothouses, for instance, right? Um, in in the Netherlands, you know, these are, are used quite effectively. You know, they're, they're producing, uh, you know, uh, nutrient-dense uh, produce, um, you know, still organic produce, um, you know, delicious tomatoes, that kind of stuff. In the U.S., generally speaking, we're producing, you know, red bags of water and we're calling them a tomato uh, because we're, we're pumping them full of water to get the size and then and then uh, spraying them with ethylene gas to uh, give them color. And otherwise, they're nutrient, nutrient poor and they don't taste like anything. And that's... Um, you know, if we can if we can take a step back on what what has been done, you know, with hot houses in the U.S. and reevaluate how can we do it better, we can start to reduce waste while, you know, mm-hmm. boosting the uh, nutrient profile. And it it's not to say everyone's doing that. This is this is uh, becoming more and more uh, prevalent for for growers because it's uh, the demand is on the rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we can start to you know, take lessons from from other countries that have been doing this for a long time, and start to reintegrate it into into our own practices. I think that that's a really good step to reducing waste. Yeah, and so when you think about um, some of the innovation work that you're focused on through Sweet Farm, uh, I know you do some angel investing yourself. Are you one who looks across the agricultural spectrum, and you're looking at all kinds of technologies or, you know, the farm is, is the only place you're doing produce uh, and otherwise you're more interested in, in clean meat and plant-based meats. Uh, yeah, just give me your thoughts on, and I guess, yeah, tell me where would you mm-hmm. put your money if you want to bet on the future of a better food system? How do you, yeah, what kind of a systems approach are you taking to investing mm-hmm. as well? So in terms of investing, there's there's a couple of things. There's uh, if you if you want to talk about the the um, thesis on which we're investing, and, and by the way, we are we are raising a fund right now through Treadlight Ventures, um, uh, our amazing uh, uh, managing partner Brett Thompson, um, based here in the LA area. Um, our our thesis on that is really around uh, humane tech and sustainability. Um, 
And when you look, when you consider those two things, right, Humane Tech kind of covers, mm -hmm. obviously, the plant-based proteins, the clean meats, um, you know, some of these ingredient companies like we've, we've mentioned. Um, and then you look at sustainability and you draw a Venn diagram between the two. Um, it's not a coincidence that they overlap mm. very, very tightly. Um, but uh, on the ag tech components, this is an area that we're are, uh, very interested in as well because those the technologies that are sustainable in the ag tech um, also starts to offset, offset uh, secondary and tertiary markets that, again, impact the animal system. So... Uh, when we initially looked at it separately, we started to very quickly realize that these cool technologies actually, you know, are are reducing or you know reducing the inputs and therefore increasing the price of those secondary animal byproducts. Mm -hmm. uh, which, if you look at the numbers on, you know, price increase in in meat mm -hmm. versus redu reduction in consumption, they're tightly correlated. So. Um, uh, so it it is a systems oriented approach. It I would say it's like a uh, some of the cases are sort of one step removed, mm. uh, but once you point them out, it becomes very obvious that yes, these are inter interrelated. No, that's that's very important, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that from you. And so this this new fund is it? Um, so how far along are you in the process? So so we've. Uh, we're actually uh, working on, you know, our, our LP raise right now. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, uh, you know, been, it's been a long, you know, something that's been in the making uh, mm -hmm. for some time. Uh, we've, we found that, you know, when, when we started the farm, uh, we weren't sure, you know, what kind of response we would get. Yep. We, we weren't sure if people were going to think we're absolutely crazy, <laughs> although some people might still think we're crazy, <laughs> um, you know, or, or what. But uh, what we found is over the last... Uh, two to three years, we've we've had a lot of entrepreneurs reaching out, coming out of the woodwork, um, to to connect with us and figure out ways to work together. So one of the one of the earliest examples, I got a cold call one day uh, from someone. I picked up the phone and they said, "Can I have your plant waste?" And I and I kind of laughed and I said, "How, how about we start with like." Hi, my name is, <laughs> I'm from this company, mm. you know, this is what I'm using it for, you know, help me help you, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and they said, well, I need to talk to the to the co-founders and, and give you a call back. So a few minutes later, they call back and they said, okay, I'm going to set up a meeting. Uh, it turns out it was with uh, Ryan Bethencourt and Ron, <laughs> Ron Shigeta, oh, really? right? So uh, Wild wild Earth Pets, uh, uh -huh. before they were actually uh, out of stealth mode. Um, so we were we were looking at some early ways of like upcycling uh, mm -hmm. plant waste into high grade proteins using koji, um, and of course they've had uh, uh, you know some wild success uh, after Shark Tank and things yep. like that. Um, but they're not the only one. That's just one instance of of companies that have been coming out of the wood woodwork to um, you know figure out ways to work together. Uh, you know we're work not just. Uh, um, you know, doing events on the farm, but we're also working with other, you know, investors around the Bay Area and, uh, you know, doing, you know, doing a, a service to these companies by helping them, you know, seek investment, that kind of thing. So, right. so the deal flow is like, it's mm -hmm. coming to, we've, we found that it's actually showing up because of, you know, the, the ethics of the farm mm -hmm. and our systems based, based approach, um, as well as things like, um, not being affiliated with, 
a university, so there's no like IP right. issues, yeah. right? Um, so it's it's been, uh, you know, we we've been really floored at the response, like just in a, in such a good way, um, and it, and it's important to note that it's not just Anna and myself. There's a whole team mm. associated with this. Like I want to make that incredibly. We still both you both of you still have sort of day jobs, right? At least, um, yeah, we, you both do. <laughs> we do. Yeah, yeah, we we do. And um, so I, I'm with Department of Energy mm-hmm. as well as. Um, a nuclear startup uh, called Kairos Power based in Alameda. Um, so designing new types of reactors. Uh, Anna's with a, a, you know, video game company. So, yeah, we, we are, um, you know, we stay busy. But, uh, you know, we have really uh, have an incredible team that, that we've taken um, great care to empower, to make mm-hmm. decisions and, um, you know, get out there and, and speak on behalf of the org. That's exciting. And so we did, uh, I did mention this earlier, I was going to come back to clean meat. Uh, I do want to get your thoughts on um, on that technology as such, uh, clean meat, cultivated meat, um, cell-based meat. Uh, I've been hearing mixed news lately. Um, and I probably shouldn't be saying this on a podcast, but some people are very optimistic about the future. Some people have been very optimistic since the day they heard about it because they really wanted it to become a reality. So mm-hmm. the optimism was based out of hope more than actual mm-hmm. science sometimes. Mm-hmm. Over the years, uh, the science has become more solid. And there have been some talks about it coming to the market in a couple of years. And first it was you know a decade, then it became two years, and then it was last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then recently I've been talking to some people who have been expressing a lot of skepticism about the potential of this being truly viable technology, the regulatory hurdles to getting it to the market, and how also, you know, when you look at where plant-based meat is now, uh, again, it's it still has a long way to go, but it obviously has made several strides in the last few years, thanks to Beyond Meat and Impossible, that have opened the the gates for many other, now, other companies to come in. You, I... I gather are an optimist when it comes to clean meat. Uh, what is your optimism based on? And and obviously you you probably dug deeper into the science than I have. Um, what is your outlook for for that technology? Well, the first the first thing in terms of me being an optimist, right? I I work in the nuclear industry, right? So we're talking about an industry that works on time scales that is, you know, multiple decades for a single project. Um, so, so when I'm thinking through, um, you know, potential for change and, and things like that, I, I'm always thinking on, on those scales. Um, so with respect to, you know, the latest uh, news on, you know, it was last year versus two years from now versus five years from now, um, I, I think... I, I try not to get too bogged down and like, oh, it's not on the market yet. Um, even though there's obvious implications, you know, on on billions of animals and mm-hmm. and you know the worsening environmental crisis and how how can we, you know, start to you know make make reversals uh, there. Uh, but certainly, uh, I am an optimist when it comes to um, seeing the you know the companies and entrepreneurs that are springing up around the world. Um, these I think are incredibly important, um, things to keep in mind when you see companies springing up in, in countries like Singapore, right? So, uh, Shiok meets, um, uh, mm-hmm. my wife, Anna and I 
along with Ryan Bethencourt, wrote the first two checks into into that company, which went went on to uh, be Y Combinator's mm-hmm. first investment uh, in the clean meat space. Um, that that was uh, very strategic because it was in a country that um, you know has food security issues, uh, has strong governmental support. Uh, governments uh, in in that part of the world tend to have a very strong five and ten year uh, strategic plans, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know the the development in in some of these countries that um, you know maintain policy uh, over long periods of time, not just on election cycles. I think is a is a key area um, that some of the early change um, can can really happen. So obviously, in the United States, there's all sorts of difficulties with. Um, you know, policymakers and lobbyists and things like that. And, and that's where I think some of the policy work of organizations like uh, GFI is, is super important. Um, and they're doing a great job with, um, they have been for the last couple of years as, as well. Um, you know, the, it's, it's really a combination of, um, you know, where, where do we, you know, we brought more broadly than just, you know, Anna and I, uh, you know, place, place bets. And it's, um, I think, important to, um, you know, really, uh, you know, go deep on supporting companies developing technologies in these these countries that are forward looking. So Israel is another example mm-hmm. of that. Um, strong governmental support, strong science base, um, and, and I think those are some of the areas that we're really going to see uh, some of the early early uh, wins, as well as you know some of the the key leaders in in the United States as well. Yeah, and so. I like that in the sense that you're not you know, I don't like when anything gets too hyped up too quickly because then you're setting up yourself sort of up for failure mm-hmm. by overpromising and underdelivering. So I do think that if people just approach it as in we're in it for the long haul and of course if we can get to it quicker mm-hmm. then why wouldn't we um but but at the same time if it's going to take longer then that's that's then that's that's what it is going to be because mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're, while we are in a race against time to, to kind of slow down the pace of climate change and change our food system, um, this isn't the only thing that is going to fix everything. So we've got to also, you know, back to what we've been talking about today, you need to have a systems view of the next 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. and, and recognize that it is sort of these little solutions are all part of a larger tapestry of of, of things that are going to fix the problems you've created for for sure and one of the one of the things I think is super important for um, you know sanctuaries uh, more broadly um, to to you know what is the role of sanctuaries right I'm, I'm here on behalf of sweet farm we have this mm-hmm. unique positioning in the Bay Area but the reality is most sanctuaries do not so how do how do other sanctuaries start to you know dip their toes into these areas and drive this long-term impact well it starts with you know being educated around these issues reading impact reports reading uh just some of the science and understanding um uh, that just at a at a high level uh because if if a sanctuary is really in the business of uh educating and inspiring um then what what it you know what a better position there's there's really no better position than uh tapping into you know the youth, uh, you know the the little kids or the high schoolers, and almost becoming. It sounds a little hokey to say, but you you almost can become a career center. You know, for for these kids, you know, um, showing them 
there's opportunities to really make a change in this, whether uh, you have interest in uh, behavioral economics or biotechnology or math or whatever. There's so many entry points to get involved in these new technologies uh, that that I think sanctuaries more broadly mm. um, can start to serve as inspiration points around the world uh, to get the next generation involved because this is we are in it for the long haul. Um, so um, that that's one of my plea to to sanctuaries uh, out there listening to this is um, you know definitely um, um, you know consider this as as a huge momentous opportunity to to engage the next generation. I I think that's that's that is the point. <laughs> that I, I think if if one thing I've taken away from talking to you, learning about what you're doing, is that you are almost redefining the sanctuary model and you're expanding um, the scope and the potential impact it can have. Yes, you do have farm animals, and yes, people love to come and interact with farm animals, and if they haven't done that before, to be surprised by the fact that they're much like the dogs and cats that we Mm -hmm. all love. Uh, But that's just a starting point. Then that becomes sort of a gateway to, to, to... a portal almost into a whole new world of the future of food and agriculture. And you can use that as sort of a, uh, yeah, a hub, a kind of um, sort of a testing ground for new technologies, for ideas. And it's, and I, you know, I think of almost the work that you and Anna are doing, you're like renegade modern day farmers meets <laughs> technology meets a sanctuary educa- education program. And, and you need, you need those multi multifaceted approaches because the people who we are trying, you know, as much as we're trying to change systems, we're also trying to change people, and and systems don't change if people don't change, right. and people come in all types and mm-hmm. are influenced by all kinds of things. So, what what may you know, someone can walk into Sweet Farm, I'm guessing, and be drawn in by the animals and next thing you know they're intrigued about some innovation program you've got going or someone could come in purely as an investor looking into you know how do i how do i not miss out on this wave of plant-based and clean meat that's happening and the next thing you know they're they're now intrigued by how food is produced and um, what is it that the, the gizmo, the cow, is doing on the farm? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and we also have, you know, we have a CSA mm-hmm. program, so a community-supported agriculture program. So we have families coming out with their kids, picking produce uh, on the weekends. We're, we're sending them away with uh, custom recipes based on what's seasonal and coming out of the field. And uh, we're also engaging those families and those kids and um you know, so it's not just priming priming the well on like, hey, here's technologies that are, you know, on, you know, coming down the pipeline, but it's also engaging with those kids in in a way that is um, uh, inspiring them to, you know, hey, consider uh, consider this as a as a potential, you know, um, you know, course of study in in mm-hmm. college, and um, you know, we we try not to um, engage, you know tell people specifically what they should study. Instead, we ask them what is interesting to you because there's so many ways to engage in the space. And I know I already said that, but I can't stress it enough. It's less about us um, dictating to them and more about saying like, hey, here's how you can fit into the system. Like go, mm-hmm. go do what is of interest to you. Be the best at that you can because we need some you know, of the smartest people in the world 
working on these problems because it, it's really uh, obviously coming down the barrel quickly with all the environmental issues. Mm. I think there's I saw fires as I was flying in uh, to LA this morning. It's things things are changing rapidly. We need uh, uh, solutions, and um, it's it's going to take time and very bright minds. Yeah, I agree. And you know, speaking of time, right? What if um, one of the things I've been thinking about is uh, obviously you you do a bunch of different things, and so does Anna, and you've got a team that's focused on Sweet Farm. Um, as you said, you're also getting into now investing, and you already have been, but now in a in a bigger way. And you're, we all try to do as much as we can within the time we have, right? So what if you knew you only – but the thing is we don't know how much time we actually do have. <laughs> if you only had five years, what would your focus be in five years? Ooh, the, the ruthless prioritization <laughs> uh, question. I like it. I would say – if I if I knew I only had five years, not you know mm-hmm. everyone has five years, but just just for me, it it really comes down to um, inspiring people, uh, inspiring people across across the board. So it's a real top down, bottom up approach. So bottom up is the generational inspiration piece, and then the top down is uh, addressing the decision makers, the large scale farmers, the small scale farmers, um, you know, educating them on, on what is, uh, you know, what is on the horizon and here are the opportunities to make their impact and, and really, um, you know, focusing on those, those two, uh, sides of it, because we need people at the top to start, you know, putting the money where, you know, where it's needed, um, you know, also inspiring those, you know, and entrepreneurs to start those companies, but then also, you know, at the, at the grassroots level, um, you know, getting, getting folks interested. So that way, um, 10, 15, 20 years from now, uh, there is a very strong pipeline to, to keep it going because it's not, uh, it, you know, it's not going to, in order to avoid the, the you know sort of fad uh fad die out of of talent in the in the talent pool uh we need to to start fostering that next generation now Mm -hmm. i agree and looking further ahead to the year 2050 you said in the beginning as well that we're going to be about 9.7 9.8 maybe 10 billion people on the planet by Mm -hmm. that point um if we get it right if all these different bets we are placing in different ways, whether in the form of time or money, um, results in something good and we're able to slow down the pace of climate change, if we're able to redefine this food system, what is your vision for the food system in the year 2050? Well, the I, I think if you look at some of the new, the new movements um, lately, you have things like the zero-waste movement right and it and it's heavily focused on um you know plastic waste and and things like that but also also there's a food waste component to it with uh, you know free gins and mm-hmm. you know that that side of things um but you know further down the the pipeline you know decades down the pipeline i think it's really utilizing uh utilizing all of our waste streams uh 
you know, both in the consumer products, but, but more, um, more broadly, like what is, you know, as consumers, what do we need to survive? We need food. And unfortunately we need stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like I hate saying it that way, but like stuff is a natural thing of, of living. Um, so, you know, how do we, how do we better utilize the three plus billion tons of human waste, uh, used each year? Or how do we, uh, better utilize, um, some of the byproducts, um, that are, uh, that will ultimately come out of things like, uh, clean meat, right? There's, there's, um, some things that the industry, that this uh, nascent industry is, uh, still figuring out, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, growth media, like how can that, uh, be, be utilized as opposed to, um, just, uh, becoming a, a waste stream of this industry. And the thing I love about the food industry, it's very industrious at finding <laughs> uses for just about mm. everything in it. Um, so, so I think as, as we go down this path, um, it's going to be, you know, leveraging the amazing minds, you know, in this new food science movement to start utilizing existing waste streams, um, that, that are underutilized or not utilized at all. Um, and so starting there, um, also decreasing the waste, uh, in the, in the food production, in the vegetable production mm-hmm. side of things. Um, and, and, um, understanding that, you know, these, a lot of these issues, um, while it's a global, uh, you know, it's a global issue uh, of, you know, environmental change and sustainability, uh, we have to address it in a way that um, is locally relevant um, to to producers and is also, um, you know, culturally sensitive um, to to places. Um, and, it, and it's, I, I think we, we just have to, um, you know, address, address all of these different streams in, in a way that's uh, recognizing the complexity of these mm. systems. Yeah, I like the way you put it. I mean, I think it's about what we've really, if you've really had to oversimplify and explain what we've done to our planet and our ecosystems, it's that we've obviously started extracting natural resources much faster than they can replenish themselves. But you mentioned the the, the what happens at the end of that is that we also are starting to add waste to this, to to the to our ecosystems that have no use, and then only then cause more damage to existing natural resources. So we kind of have at the entry point and at the exit point, we mm-hmm. need to minimize <laughs> what we're doing to keep the system sort of self-sustaining, um, almost like a self-watering hydroponic system of <laughs> sorts, uh, where where the inputs and the inputs are minimized and the outputs are reused back mm-hmm. in. I think it's it's kind of that simple. Yeah. Uh- Absolutely, and and this isn't a uh, new concept. If if you go back to you know science science fiction, right? <laughs> it, I, one of the examples I, I love uh, using is um, you know the the books uh, Dune. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Like you know they're wearing spacesuits, and I'm not saying like I hope we're wearing uh, suits that reclaim our own uh, uh-huh. you know urine for for drinking water uh, in the in the future, but um, you know that's. There's there's oftentimes a lot of basis uh, in you know science fiction leading reality and um, what's happening now in the food system is incredibly exciting um, and and gives me um, you know ho- hope that you know we're we're moving in the r- right direction but I don't just rely on hope only right like I'm yeah. getting out there trying to do things trying to make connections um, and, and 
you know, help, uh, you know, make it more than hope. And I, I mm-hmm. hope that people are listening to the, to the podcast also take those actions into their own, the own, you know, their own, uh, day to day, um, to make their own impact. Well, thank you, Nate. This has been, um, really interesting. I really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to dive deep into what you're doing with Sweet Farm. Um, again, I find it, I find it really fascinating. I, I think you're, there's a lot more you can do with it and you're probably just getting started and, and I can't wait to see how the, what the ripple effect of, of this, um, of this one sort of experiment of sorts that you've <laughs> embarked on um, and where it, where it goes in the years ahead. But, but thanks so much. Thank, thank you very much for having us. And, uh, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm only one person on a, on a team. And if folks are interested in uh, engaging with Sweet Farm, you know, we do have a, a robust uh, volunteer uh, basis. Um, you know, people can reach out to us uh, or me directly at nate at sweetfarm.org. Visit our website at uh, www.sweetfarm.org. Uh, lots of ways uh, to engage and get involved. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.